Lord uh, for uh, the privilege to come and to engage uh, in Paul's thoughts, his final thoughts toward Timothy, toward life, toward the life that he had lived and the race that he had run. Lord, I pray that we could glean from these words. Lord, we believe that these words are inspired by your Spirit and intended for our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you speak to us today, encourage us, challenge us, do your work in us, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Once a pastor went to the ICU at the local hospital to visit a church member who was on life support. The pastor stood at the man's bedside and spoke to him for several minutes. The uh, the patient grew disturbed. He became agitated even. He reached for a pad and he wrote the pastor a a short note. Well, not wanting to further upset the man, the pastor smiled at him and slipped the note into his jacket pocket. He prayed for the fellow and then he left the hospital. Sadly, a few hours later, the pastor received a call from one of the man's relatives informing him that the man had passed away. Well, it wasn't until about halfway through the funeral service that the pastor remembered the note that the man had written. He'd forgotten all about it. He reached into his jacket pocket, he pulled it out, held it up to the crowd, and he says, Ladies and gentlemen, I have in my hand a piece of paper that contains the last words of our departed brother. But the pastor never read it out loud. For the dead man had written, You're standing on my oxygen tube. Well, 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4 are Paul's last words. As he awaits his execution, he records some final instructions. As Timothy unrolls the letter, he discovers what Paul was thinking as he prepared for eternity. Chapter 3 begins, But know this, that in the last days... Perilous times will come. The Greek word translated perilous means savage and dangerous. Paul warns Timothy that as we get closer to the return of Jesus, society will grow worse and worse, not better. And here's how. For men will be lovers of themselves. People will become self-absorbed. They'll worship themselves. And lovers of money. These are folks who love money. They put money above conscience and friendship and family and even God. Men will become boasters, proud, blasphemers. They boast that they no longer need or believe in God. I read of a local atheist group in Madison, Wisconsin. They erected a sign right next to the city's Christmas tree. It read, In this season of the winter solstice, May reason prevail. There are no gods, no devil, no angels, no heaven or hell. There is only the natural world. Religion is but a superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. But ironically, printed on the back of the sign were these words, Thou shalt not steal. You know, it's amazing that the people who blaspheme God still lean on his laws to protect their own self-interests. Atheists mock the idea of God, but without his moral standards of right and wrong, they can't construct an orderly world worth living in. Life turns into chaos. Also in the last days, 
folks will become disobedient to parents, Paul says. Once a British visitor to the U.S., the Duke of Windsor, he was asked what impressed him most about our country. He said, the way American parents obey their children. (laughs) Today, pop culture mocks parental authority and glamorizes rebellion. Disputing authority is viewed by some as a rite of passage. A parent who hopes to teach his child respect for authority isn't going to get a lot of help from society. Well, Paul continues his list, unthankful. In the last days, people will be better off and appreciate it less. They'll also be unholy. No one will fear God or feel the need to make the least sacrifice for his sake. Verse 3, unloving. The word literally means without natural affection. Normal, natural ties will disappear. I heard the bizarre case of a 22-year-old Florida mom who killed her three-month-old son. She shook him to death for interrupting her as she was playing Farmville. The baby dared to cry while mom was tending to her virtual farm. That's unloving, and that is certainly not natural. People will also become unforgiving. Folks will grow bitter and self-righteous. Imagine a world where everyone carries a grudge. That's where we're headed. Also, slanderers. Today we live in a social media culture where folks can tweet and post their libel. People will be without self-control, brutal. Did you know that every 22 seconds in America someone is beaten or stabbed or shot? We live today in a violent society. And what would you expect after sampling the savagery on primetime television? David Walsh, president of the National Institute of Media and Family, stated, It is tragically ironic that at the very time we are wringing our hands about the violent behavior among young people, we are simultaneously entertaining them with it. The same people who pay $5 million for a 30-second Super Bowl commercial turn around and tell us that TV and video games have very little effect on children's behavior. Do the media moguls really think we're that stupid? In the last days, folks will be despisers of good, traitors. In other words, you'll no longer be able to trust people. You know, there was a day in America when a man's word was his bond, but no longer. Everyone today looks for loopholes. Contracts are renegotiated. Handshakes mean nothing. People will be headstrong, stubborn. They'll be prejudicial. They're right and everybody else is wrong. And folks will become, Paul says, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And if there's any statement that fits modern American life, that's it. People today live for the weekend and not to go to church, sadly, but to party all night and play all day. We've become lovers of pleasure. In a USA Today poll, Americans aged 18 to 64 were asked how they spend their leisure time. At the top of the list was television, 15.1 hours a week. Religion was way, way down on the list, less than one hour a week. We spend 15 hours a week watching TV and 50 minutes a week on our relationship with God. 
we're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then verse 5 continues Paul's last day's analysis. He says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Realize, you can be a lover of yourself and a lover of money and proud and headstrong and everything Paul warns us about here and still be religious. You can have a form of godliness. You can be religious, yet deny God's transformative power. People today embrace the form, not the force. The religion without the reality. The liturgy without the life. The prophet Jeremiah lived among religious people, hypocritical Jews. In Jeremiah 12, verse 2, he describes them. God is near in their mouth, but far from their minds. People in the last days will want enough of God to feel secure, but not enough of God to change their heart and renew their mind and reform how they live. Reminds me of a quote. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a man of a different color or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Yet God doesn't come in mini bites or $3 portions. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Notice what Paul says about people who like being religious without being godly. He says, and from such people turn away. If the believers you're around are simply playing church, it's not your job to stay with them in hopes of changing them. You need to remove yourself. Chances are they'll rub off on you rather than vice versa. Verse 6, for this sort are those who creep into households. I like how the NIV reads, they worm their way in. And they make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Paul is thinking of the smooth-talking preacher who plays on the rich widow's naivety or guilt, milks her for her money. Slick pastors who play at religion are consummate con artists, manipulators. They pluck at the heartstrings of emotionally vulnerable people to pad their own pockets. He says they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here's a description that fits lots of Christians. They're on that continual quest for the new revelation, the secret formula, the hidden key. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Rather than resting in the settled truth of God's word, rather than allowing their faith to mature, they run about hoping to discover a shortcut. Oh, it's easier to excuse my failure on ignorance than it is on a lack of faith and obedience. And then verse 8 tells us, Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. 
but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. In Exodus chapter 7, Moses threw down his rod before the Pharaoh, and it turned into a serpent. Yet the magicians of Egypt were able to duplicate the miracle. Satan also has supernatural power. In Exodus 7, the sorcerers are nameless. It's not until we get to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, that we discover their names, Janus and Jambres. These occult practitioners duplicated several of Moses' miracles. They turned the Nile to blood and called up frogs. But when Moses brought the third plague, the plague of lice, they threw in their towel. Exodus 8, verse 19, Then the magician said, This is the finger of God. Yes, Satan has supernatural power, but it's limited. The power of God exceeds the power of Satan. And Paul here tells us, That in the last days, false teachers will likewise demonstrate a powerful resistance to the truth. But eventually, that resistance will be overcome and prove foolish. It will be eclipsed by the power of God. And then Paul focuses in on Timothy in verse 11. He says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Timothy's hometown was Lystra in Galatia. And there in the early days of Paul's ministry, Timothy observed his friend being stoned by the Jews. He saw firsthand the ungodly persecution that his mentor had encountered. More importantly, he witnessed God's deliverance. See, Paul's life was a lesson. What had happened to him happens to all believers to one degree or the other. Thus, Paul promises Timothy, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Did you hear that? You know, Christians love to claim the promises of God. Matthew 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't you love that? How about Philippians 4, verse 19? My God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13, verse 5, you keep this close to heart, don't you? I will never leave you nor forsake you. We love to recall the promises of God. We turn them into bumper stickers and refrigerator magnets. But you'll never see this promise, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 on a Hallmark card. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yet it's God's promise nonetheless. We might as well expect it and prepare for it if this world hated Jesus. It'll hate us too. Then verse 13. In the last days, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. See, the key is not a new revelation, but the once and for all revelation of God's Word. He says, And that from childhood... You have known the Holy Scriptures, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Realize you never graduate from the Bible. You know, you don't study the Bible for a semester and then sell it back to the bookstore. God's book is your curriculum for life. It's God's special word to us. In it, there's all we need to obtain and maintain a right relationship with Him. Paul assures us in verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Realize certain sections of Scripture are not more inspired than other sections. All Scripture is equally inspired. It's God-breathed. That's why we teach book by book and chapter by chapter and verse by verse. The book of Leviticus is as inspired as the book of Luke. There are truths that we can glean from all the Bible. In fact, I believe it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And not only is all Scripture inspired, it's also beneficial. Verse 16, and is profitable. Sadly, there are pastors today who are teaching. They're suggesting that the Old Testament is arcane. It's irrelevant to Christians today. Not so. The Old Testament is as instructive as the New. In different ways, perhaps, but all Scripture is invaluably needful. Paul says the Bible is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Doctrine is what to believe. Correction is what not to believe. Instruction is how to live. Reproof is how not to live. And the Bible accomplishes all four tasks. The Word of God has been given to us that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All we need to know to grow and go for God is found in the pages of our Bible. And then chapter 4. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, at His appearing in His kingdom. Jesus is returning to this earth to judge every soul that has ever lived and to establish His eternal throne on planet earth. Once there was a lady, she was accused of a crime. She was guilty. And she knew that she needed a crack defense attorney. A lawyer was recommended to her. He was good. She wrote down his name and address, but she delayed in contacting him. When her trial date grew closer, she realized that she needed to act. And so she called the attorney. Sadly, though, it was too late. He explained that if she had called just a week earlier, he would have been happy to take her case. But two days ago, he had been appointed judge. Instead of being her advocate, he had now become her judge. And this is going to happen to millions of people on earth Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of God as our advocate, as our attorney. He's willing to plead our case and secure for us the mercy and pardon of God. But soon, when Jesus returns, he'll be appointed judge. And he'll be forced to condemn everyone who has ignored him or opposed him. Hope you don't wait to call Jesus. And this is why Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
That means when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient, when it's planned and when it's spontaneous. He says, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. We need to proclaim God's word with as much persuasive power as we can muster. Convince, rebuke, encourage, teach, and stay at it. Don't give up. Here's a poem you don't want to hear said of you one day. My friend, I stand in judgment now, and I feel that you are to blame somehow. On earth we talk together day by day, but never did you point the way. You know the Lord in truth and glory, but never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safe to him. Though we lived together on the earth, you never told me of new birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. We all need to proclaim God's truth to the people around us. And then verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. In the last days, truth will no longer be popular. It will no longer be sought out. People will develop an appetite for half-truths. They'll listen to what pleases and what teases, what tickles rather than what teaches. And the church and its pastors will cater to their demand. They'll water down the Word of God and they'll pass out defective doctrines, fables rather than truth. One of the scariest passages in all of the Bible is Jeremiah 5, verse 31. It says, The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. Here's the tragedy. My people love to have it so. Church members often get the leaders and teachers they deserve. He says, But you, and he's speaking again to Timothy, the faithful minister, he says, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. See, perilous times have a way of discouraging faithful servants. And Paul tells Timothy to stick to it, endure. He should finish what God called him to do. As Spurgeon once said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. We all need perseverance. And searching for a way to illustrate perseverance, Paul uses himself in verse 6. He says, For I already, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul's life on earth is at a close. Graduation day is right around the corner for Paul. He's about to depart from this world to be with Christ. And notice Paul describes his life as a drink offering. It's a sacred libation that was poured out on the sacrificial meat. The drink offering was sort of like spiritual steak sauce. Kind of tenderized the meat. And Paul saw himself as adding flavor and tenderizing the hearts of those saints that had given themselves to God as a living sacrifice. I guess you could call Paul an A1 servant of Christ. Notice too. Paul's life 
could never be taken from him, for it had already been given to God and poured out on others. You can't take away what I no longer possess. Paul left it all on the field. He lived with no regrets. He gave all of his life to Jesus and passed into eternity with no remorse. Paul even speaks of his impending execution, not his death, but as the time of my departure. The Greek word translated departure is a wonderful word. Author Warren Wearsby, he provides for us four definitions. First, it can mean to hoist an anchor and set sail. And that's what Paul is doing now, coming to the close of his life. He's now headed for new waters. Second, it can mean to take down a tent. Paul's physical body had been a temporary dwelling. It had acted like a tent. Now God is going to strike the tent. Paul's going to move to heaven. Third, departure can mean to free a prisoner. Death for Paul was God's jailbreak. It was God's means of delivering him from persecution in prison to paradise. And then fourth, the word can mean to unyoke an ox. Paul had spent 30 years of tireless service. He had bore the yoke of God's will for 30 years. Now he's going to be, it's going to be removed and he's going to enter into his rest. Well, Paul continues in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. Paul was like a marathon runner crossing the finish line. It was like a boxer had gone the distance, all 15 rounds. Paul refused to tap out. He's now about to break the tape. All his Christian life, he had run to win. Now he's stretching and he's straining. And he's finally going to be rewarded. What a moment this is. Have you fought the good fight? Are you going to finish well? Once a little boy, he received a little yellow parakeet as a birthday gift. He was painting his wooden cage with a coat of varnish when he reached inside to remove the bird. But the parakeet fell into the varnish and drowned. It was tragic. The boy was so upset, he was in tears. His older brother found him and comforted him as only an older brother can. Cheer up, little buddy. At least your bird had a good finish. Ha, ha, ha. And here Paul is finishing well. He's ran. He's kept the faith. He finishes well, and I hope we will too. Don't gloss over how Paul views his life. He didn't say, the party's over. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I went toe-to-toe with all life could throw at me, and I kept the faith. I finished. Paul fought Judaizers and Gnostics. Illnesses and weariness, jealous people and pagan people and greedy people, physical assaults and personal attacks and vicious lies. Close friends forsook him. Churches denied him. His Christian life had been an uphill fight, and yet he'd stuck with it. How do you view your life? Is it a stroll in the park? Is it a tiptoe through the tulips? Hey, I believe that if you live for God's glory, your life will be nothing short of a brawl. Do your job with integrity, and you know what? 
You'll fight your co-workers who want to cut corners. Hold high standards in your home. And you'll fight your kids' desire to compromise. Desire holiness in your heart. And you'll fight with your own flesh. Open up your home for a discipleship group or a Bible study. And you'll probably fight the neighbors next door. This world is hostile to God. It killed Jesus. Don't expect it to roll out the red carpet for you. We need to buckle our chin strap, fight the good fight, and finish well. And the winner of a fight receives a belt or a crown or some award. And this is what Paul had his eyes on. He says in verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Two types of crowns are mentioned in Scripture. The Greek terminology is diadema and Stephanos. The diadem was the king's crown. It was inherited rather than earned. But the Stephanos, or the laurel, it was the victor's wreath. It was given to the winners of the Olympic Games and worn by conquering generals. And this is the reward that Paul expects to receive, the Stephanos of righteousness. You know, the Bible teaches that there are crowns that will be passed out to Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. The Lord Jesus himself will reward believers who remain faithful to him in their life and in their service. The New Testament mentions five such crowns. 1 Corinthians 9 lists an imperishable crown. It's given to the believer who lives a disciplined life. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Paul mentions a crown of rejoicing. This goes to the person who wins souls for Jesus. James 1 verse 12 talks of the crown of life. This is awarded to believers who resist temptation. 1 Peter 5 verse 4 speaks of a crown of glory. And this is the award given to faithful church leaders. Finally, there's the crown of righteousness. Here in 2 Timothy, it's received by all believers who keep their hearts primed, stay undistracted by this world, and live their lives longing for the appearing of our Lord Jesus. What crowns will you receive? crown of righteousness is given to folks who love His appearing. I have a friend of mine who used to call himself Pan Trib. When it came to the return of Jesus... For his church. He figured, well, however it pans out, I'm just pan trip. I don't like that attitude. I'm pre trib. I believe the next thing that happens on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church. Love the Lord's appearing. Long to see Jesus. Hey, Jesus is what's next. You won't endure if you don't keep your eyes on the prize. You know, as a kid, I loved my mom. But I didn't always love her appearance. When my hand was in the cookie jar and she walked into the kitchen, I still loved my mom, but I didn't necessarily love her appearing at that moment. A special crown goes to the man who keeps his hand out of the cookie jar and lives his life ready to meet Jesus. Well, for the rest of the chapter, Paul deals with some practical issues, and we get a rare glimpse into his personal world. In verse 9, he writes to Timothy, Be diligent 
to come to me quickly. Paul's legal proceedings weren't going so well. His appeals are almost exhausted. An execution date hasn't been set, but it would soon. Paul would love to see his son in the faith one more time. Nobody should have to die alone. Hurry, Timothy. Verse 10 tells us why it's so vital that Timothy come to him. He says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Demas was once a trusted ally of Paul, but the world stole his heart. Demas sold his soul for selfish pleasures. And I know Demas' last words before he bailed out. They're not in the Bible, but I know them. I've heard them so many times before. Demas said, I just want to be happy. Recently, I bumped into a guy up here at the Waffle House. He was once a part of Calvary Chapel, but it had been months since I'd seen him. He told me he was now considering a divorce. And this is what he said. I just want some happiness. That's what Demas said. But that's not what he meant. He meant he just wanted to get drunk. He just wanted to be free from responsibility. He meant he was tired of his job and his wife's disrespect and the kids' rebellion and all the ingratitude. Life had gotten hard for him and he wanted out. Hey, Demas, regardless of how attractive it sounds, escaping God-given responsibilities is not anyone's ticket to happiness. Demas swapped his commitments for a few jollies. There's no satisfaction in that. And on top of his continued emptiness, He'll add alimony and child support and shame and guilt and even the loss of his children's respect. Hey, guys, life is a fight with or without Jesus. Without Jesus, life is just a wild goose chase with no goose. But with Jesus, there's a prize worth having after the fight. Well, Paul was now alone. Crescens had left him for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. He says, only Luke is with me. Luke was not only the New Testament historian, he was Paul's personal physician. And then he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Wow, this is unexpected. Back in Acts 15, on his first missionary journey, Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. When it came time for a second expedition, Paul refused to take Mark. It created a split with Paul and Barnabas. But now at the end of Paul's journeys, He desires to be with Mark. Obviously, he harbors no grudges. He's forgiven Mark, and he's given him a second chance. And now Paul considers him useful to me for ministry. Then verse 12, And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus, and Tychicus is delivering this letter to Timothy. Paul is sending him as Timothy's replacement, so Timothy can now come to Rome. In verse 13, Paul adds, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come. Apparently winter is right around the corner. It's getting cold in his Roman jail cell. Paul needs a coat to stay warm. He also asks for the books, especially the parchments. And this truly amazes me. Paul wants his Bible. Hey, this is the man who wrote half the New Testament. 
He took the gospel around the globe. He started churches everywhere. And yet at the end of his life, he's sitting in a jail cell, and he says, I really want my Bible. Here's a man who kept growing even to the end. Guys, you never outgrow your Bible. Remember, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And that's true whether you've been a Christian for 30 minutes or for 30 years. And then verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Paul pulls no punches. This Alexander did him much harm. And Paul levels the worst of curses on this man. He affords him no grace, no mercy. Just give this guy what he deserves. Repay him according to his works. Paul had enemies as well as friends. And before he departs this earth, he points them out to Timothy. The guys will give him the most trouble. He says, you also must be aware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. And then verse 16 is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of the Bible. He says, at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. You see, Roman courts had preliminary hearings where evidence was presented for and against the accused. A time was scheduled for the prosecutor to parade his witnesses before the court. Then the defendant had a time when he brought his witnesses to affirm his innocence and to attest to his character. Evidently, on the day that Paul defended himself, nobody showed. Not a single friend. Paul had led thousands of people to Jesus, yet when he needed a friend, no other human being showed up to help. Can you imagine? But Paul held no resentment. He had learned a lesson, verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. At his trial before Nero, only Jesus stood with Paul But that caused Paul to realize Jesus was all he needed. I love the paraphrase of verse 17. At my preliminary hearing, no one stood by me. They all ran like scared rabbits. But it doesn't matter. The master stood by me. At the end of verse 17, Paul remarks about his first imprisonment. He says, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. It could be he had literally been thrown to the lions. That was a torture common in Rome. Could it be God saved Paul by striking the big cats with locked jaw like he did for Daniel? Or Paul could have been speaking metaphorically here of Nero or even of Satan himself. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 refers to Satan as a roaring lion. The point Paul makes is that God had delivered him once and God will deliver him again if he so chooses. Verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. Everywhere this couple's mentioned in Scripture, we find Priscilla and Aquila hosting a Bible study in their home. Here's a couple that not only opened up their hearts, but opened up their home to Jesus. And also greet the household of Onesiphorus, Onesiphorus was visiting Paul in Rome at this very time. And it might be that he sort of poked Paul in the ribs and nudged him and said, Hey, can you mention something about my family back there in Ephesus? 
And then verse 20, Erastus stayed in Corinth. Erastus was a Corinthian official mentioned several times in the New Testament. And what are the odds? If you go to Corinth today, guess whose name you see engraved in the street? There's the name Erastus. Proof of the Bible's reliability, its historical veracity and reliability. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but he says, Trophimus, I have left sick in Miletus. If it's God's will to heal all illnesses, why did Paul leave behind a sick Trophimus? The truth is, is that God often uses illness for his purpose. And then Paul continues to address Timothy, verse 21. He says, do your utmost to come before winter. And why the rush, Paul? Well, remember, Paul's counting on Timothy to fetch his coat. The coat he left in Troas. He needed it. It was turning chilly. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren, all believers in Rome. And here are Paul's final words. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. What will be your final words? A cry for help? Regrets and remorse? Or like Paul, will you be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. The first step to doing that is to give your life to Jesus. And if you haven't done that, we can help you with that today. The second step, is to keep giving your life to Jesus every day in new ways.